Thanks for taking time to listen to this episode of The Real Rescue Podcast. Take a minute to go to therealrescue.com to check out these and other great deals from our sponsors here at The Real Rescue. This episode of The Real Rescue Podcast is brought to you by Breeze Eastern, the world's only dedicated helicopter hoist and winch provider. Axness, because when lives are at stake and conditions are challenging, clear communication is of the utmost importance. SR3 Rescue Concepts, because you don't know what you don't know. And RescueSwimmershop.com, official high-quality apparel featuring the silhouette. Breeze Eastern, they dedicate themselves to our helicopter rescue world. Since the very first helicopter rescue in November of 1945, Breeze Eastern has designed and manufactured superior rescue hoist solutions. While much of the technology and the unique mission requirements have changed over the past 75 years, their commitment to the rescuers, the operators, and those being rescued has not. Contact them today by visiting them at breeze-eastern.com. The Axness PNG wireless ICS system can bring cutting-edge wireless intercommunication system technology to any aircraft. The PNG system can be fully integrated into an existing ICS system or can be carried on and off as a mobile base station. They can go anywhere at any time on any aircraft. Plus, with the strongest and most robust waterproof handheld on the market, this system can take a hit and keep working. Their wireless intercom systems are designed to enhance situational awareness through improved communication capability. This system brings superior noise canceling technology to eliminate rotor wash and engine noise from your ICS. The Axness PNG wireless system is currently deployed in more than 1,800 public safety, air ambulance, and search and rescue aircrafts worldwide. I have personally used the Axness system in four different countries and on five different airframes. It is awesome. If you want more information, contact them today at axness.com. That's A-X-N-E-S dot com. You just make sure you tell them Quinny sent me. SR3 Rescue Concepts is a training company that can help your helicopter training. They train daytime, nighttime, aerial firefighting, hoist, longline, fast rope, rappel, and more. They can assist your program with standardization and safety checks or just an FAA annual refresher. With the certified flight instructor pilots and experienced crew, they are ready to help your agency keep up to date with current techniques, rules, regulations, and equipment. Plus, right now, SR3 is offering 10% off anything in their web store with the promo code, all capital letters, REALRESCUE, R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q. Plus, they are offering another 10% from their partners, Petzl, and their equipment. All you gotta do is send an email to info at sr3rescueconcepts.com. Mention this podcast, The Real Rescue Podcast, and they'll take care of the rest. And 15 years ago, photographer and Coast Guard rescue swimmer number 526, Chris Razok, created an iconic photograph. This photograph depicted the silhouette of a helicopter rescue swimmer reaching down for an outstretched hand in need against the American flag backdrop. The image went viral and became a symbol worldwide for the rescue community and the people they helped. 
Its wild popularity inspired Chris to launch RescueSwimmerShop.com, a web store offering official high-quality apparel featuring his evocative image, The Silhouette. T-shirts, hats, patches, and stickers featuring The Silhouette are available at RescueSwimmerShop.com, including the flagship design, So Others May Live. Follow Chris and his story on Instagram with the handle at Rescue Swimmer Shop. And if you are a rescue swimmer, support rescue swimmers, or just tell people you are one at the bar, this gear is definitely for you. When you get to the website, rescueswimmershop.com, enter the promo code, all lowercase, one word, rescue, R-E-S-C-U-E, for 10% off your order. Our next guest is a national park ranger, a climbing ranger, a paramedic, and he has got some epic stories. My gosh, they are amazing. So please welcome our next guest, Mr. David Weber. My name is Jason Quinn. I am United States Coast Guard Rescue Swimmer number 500. These are my rescues and rescues from those of us that put our lives on the line every day so others may live. This is The Real Rescue Podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to The Real Rescue Podcast. Today, I've got somebody with me that's like, oh man, it's just kind of super fun for me um, for many, many reasons. But let me start with his name, Mr. David Weber. What's up, Dave? How are you, buddy? I'm great. How are you? It's good to see you again. Oh man, it's good to see you too. So Dave, you are a park ranger, uh, a paramedic, a climbing ranger, and you do all this cool stuff in national parks. That's the short version. That reads a lot better than my business card, but yes, I'm uh, I'm one of the climbing rangers. You're welcome. You know what? Take it and put it on there. <laughs> Thanks, man. Yeah, uh, sorry, sorry. Maybe I'll just Climb. have an audio, audio business card from now on, and people can just push play yeah, with that's your a voice good idea. on it. No, uh, so no. I am. I, I do every, most of those things you said. Uh, I, I am one of the, it's a National Park Service job. I'm a, one of the park rangers that has specialty in climbing and rescue. Uh, I've been up at Denali for the last 13 seasons and I'm transitioning to the Teton rescue team where I've been for two and then I'm a flight medic and hoist rescuer uh, at Intermountain Life Flight. That's kind of how I split my year uh, for the last uh, seven or eight years. I've been kind of divided that way that's pretty cool and, and when you say divided like season you're literally up there for like summertime in alaska and then what wintertime spring and fall down in the states yeah pretty much the climbing climbing season in alaska has been kind of may to july and then as i'm moving into the teton settle i'm sorry march to july and then my new climbing season will be kind of may to september in the tetons just given their season um, and so i'm gone pretty much for that entire time doing rescue for the park service i do travel back and forth to keep my employment status at lifelight i i promise them a minimum number of shifts a, a month and so i am flying i have a lot of delta miles we'll, well say. done bouncing back and forth <laughs> yeah <laughs> Uh, I do Mr. get the Dave, question you, a lot. You've been, you've been upgraded. When I, yeah. When I meet people or see them at a conference or something like, how can I do that? I was like, they are never going to go for that gig again. It was the one and only mistake they made to let somebody 
we have this schedule and they're like that's not going to happen again <laughs> yeah we hate this <laughs> yeah sorry i blew it for everybody <laughs> oh man you know what i appreciate the honesty all right so that's out <laughs> yeah yeah so don't ask oh, man that is funny um to give a little background about where you and I met, we were at HAI uh, this last year, and which we had a great time at. And you and I both had an opportunity to speak at the APSA present or conference. And you actually went first, which I absolutely loved your presentation that you had there. Um, you were talking a lot about training, and you know, there was a lot of great information. And um, and then I met you after. And I was like, man, you're going to stick around for mine. And you're like, nope, I'm leaving. I'm like, oh, thanks. So you didn't get to hear mine. But that's where we met. And, and it, the connection was made. And, and this is why you're here. So I'm stoked. Thank you so much I, for coming on. I think so many people undervalue that connection and networking that happens at those conferences. Because that's way more than half of what you tend to get out of that. It's the people that you come out of, connections you get while there, people you can can wrap with about training or what their systems are. And I think that's a huge benefit to doing that meeting people like you, where it's like, Oh, you're doing this somewhere totally different, yeah. but where do the places collide? And I think that's a really neat thing that often administrators don't understand. They see us just going down to Dallas for a boondoggle, which <laughs> there are, there are elements of that, of course. There, but... <laughs> there are elements. Yeah. yeah I agree. <laughs> but it is great to learn from each other because everybody's doing it slightly different. And in the end, it turns out, you kind of yeah. keep coming back to these basic principles that everybody's probably working on. Which I, I totally agree with you too. I mean, you're going to agree. You're going to meet people down there um, like at this conference and other, other conferences that are there. Like we were at the Goodrich conference, you know, and you're meeting people, talking to them, listening to present uh, presentations that are going on about ideas and stuff that are out there. And then the app. So, you know, all their presentations, it was, it was like a good plethora of knowledge that comes in and out of there it's like wow so and you learn yeah. from people's mistakes too because there's that talk as well so right but anyway. yeah the mistakes don't need to be your own which is a really nice thing if you're willing yeah. to listen <laughs> i don't need yes. to do it myself <laughs> <laughs> hey guys this is how not to do it oh yeah hey, thank you <laughs> yeah someone did this for us thankfully <laughs> <laughs> oh that's funny well, I'll tell you what, Dave, if you don't mind, give a little background about you, kind of where you're from, and how the, how did you get into being a park ranger? Yeah, it's a, it's a little convoluted story. My father was in the military, but uh, got out when he, uh, when I, really close to when I was born, but kind of kept that military movement in our life. So about every year, he was an engineer, so we were bouncing all over the country. And I think with that, it was always priority to, to go on kind of national trip parks and be outside and so that was probably my first like the most basic introduction to all of it and then uh once i hit college I, that's where i got my paramedic and then i also was an ocean lifeguard for the park service that's a job apparently and i was like yeah wow. sign me up yeah yeah <laughs> I'll, I'll hang out <laughs> on the beach in california and cape cod and uh and so I think those were probably the initial forays for me into it was, was getting my paramedic and seeing that pre-hospital side of that and realizing, okay, there's stuff here that I really like. And then the really being outdoors with the park service and that ocean lifeguard job doing true rescue. I think those are the things that probably set the hook for me. And then I think the last thing was also during college, I began working as a, a kind of an apprentice rock 
climbing guide. And that was probably when I found the element or where the kind of setting I wanted to do all this stuff in was like, okay, I really like being in the mountain with that other, but then you come back to your college counselor or you like look in those, what should I do with my life books? And that answer is not in there that combines those things. They're like, that sounds like camp. <laughs> You're like, sure. You can, you can go back to kids camp. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> uh, so it took a little while until, uh, I found a, uh, a job in Zion national park and they have backcountry and climbing ranger jobs there at that time and that was that was it that was the launching point for me was seeing okay i can be outdoors i can practice medicine practice rescue do that all in this kind of remote and rugged setting and that was it i was sold and then everything from there was kind of focused on continuing to combine all those things however possible and through whether mountain guiding, rock guiding, working for other parks. And, and that's kind of, that's what set it off. And that was, that was just post-college. Dang, that is so killer. I love it. Well, I love, so I love rock climbing. Like I love being outside and outdoors. Like, man, that's my world too. Oh, good for yeah. You. I, I just feel really lucky because it, it, you know, I was kind of on that medicine track for a while in college. And like, you're talking to professors and you're talking to, career counselor people and they're like what you're talking about does not exist you can't do what you're talking about that's just yes so you can that thing <laughs> i know and here i am <laughs> people uh. you can but so it's it's great and i think just keep pushing for those things and if it doesn't exactly exist there's probably a way to pigeonhole it so that you can add a couple of those like roles together or bring something into what you're currently doing like i just taken no for an answer it's just never been a real strong suit of mine and and i just yeah i think just keep looking it drove my parents nuts they were just out visiting it was really cool to watch them who were kind of on more of a structured path both wanted that for their three kids and and my path was not at all that and i'm pretty sure that they were the i was the one that they were convinced was going to be living in their basement until they retired and <laughs> thankfully everyone I, I don't live in my parents basement in case you were wondering <laughs> uh, you know i was gonna ask that no. <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah man, that's killer uh you mentioned cape cod did you ever get climbing up in um up in new hampshire at all we yeah that's so that first rock climbing job was in the gunk mountains in uh new york and then the winter guiding they would send us up to conway new hampshire and so that was Literally, you know, people ask a lot, like having been to Rainier as a climbing ranger and then up to Denali as a climbing ranger, like, oh, where's your, where have you had like the worst personal trips or where have you gotten your butt handed to you the most? The presidential mountains of New Hampshire, period, full stop. That place, like you look on a map, you see 6,000 feet, 5,000 feet is an ass kicker. That place <laughs> has like kicked my butt more than any other place I've ever been period and i love it about there like it's just so raw up there and so yeah i've spent a decent amount of time in there mainly getting my getting my butt handed to me and, and figuring out some hard life lessons <laughs> <laughs> oh i love it uh there's a couple um and i want to think i think it was zion um zion rock climbing area up there in new hampshire I think it was out of Conway as well, or at least close to it. Anyway, it doesn't matter. 
I, I used to go lead climbing up there all the time. I absolutely loved it. God, I had a Yeah, that's such a, so. such a good place and such a hardy culture of climbers up there. Like, it's just tough. Like, the yeah. tough as nails people that are like, it's not the REI catalog people. It's people out there doing really hard stuff in really hard conditions. And yeah. you're like, okay, I think I'm going to go west to where this is easier. <laughs> <laughs> That's so like funny. sunny, sunny well, stuff. You know, I will tell you though, I remember climbing on one of the routes um, and it was the middle of fall. And, and for those that don't know, New England fall is amazing. The colors on the trees, just the, the, oh, it's the trees are just beautiful with colors, orange and reds and, you know, just, oh, it's beautiful. Anyway, so we're up on this like ultimate ridge and you get over the top of the tree line and all you see is just these colors from miles and you're like wow like i actually had to stay up at the top of the climb for me like yeah i gotta take this in for a minute because this is yeah. pretty awesome so yeah but. yeah I, I felt like the gunks is like that too a bunch of those like river drainages and where those are like it seems like you just get these you're in the trees in the trees in the trees and then all of a sudden you're not and it's yeah. just these like as far as you can see <laughs> <laughs> landscapes that that totally. i think not too many people appreciate there you know you hear big sky montana and these other places where it's just really easy to get the view and yeah. there you work a little bit and you get these views like you said that seem like it's to the other side of the ocean yeah it it's pretty impressive there's something to be said about that too like just i, I mean we're totally not on subject at all but <laughs> i i do love climbing i love getting to the top of the climb and and just kind of taking it all in for a minute when you turn around and you're a hundred feet off the ground and you're like, yeah, this is pretty awesome. So it's, yeah. And it, I, I don't know, for me personally, it's just a really good challenge. You know, I had a really great opportunity this last, as I mentioned this last year, just transitioning, being at Denali for 12 seasons and, and then making that move over the Tetons, like totally different environment. You know, I'm, I'm going from glaciated mountaineering, ice climbing, environment to like loose alpine rock environment in my last season i would tell every one of my ranger partners i was like great you can lead this like i'm following you guys around here to to have that reset in your life i think is awesome for me i like i relished in that so much last season just being like this is all new to me or i haven't been in this terrain for a really long time and so my risk assessment my skill level like all those things are below where i want them to be and to have that just ability to be like, yep, I'm going to go back to this like novice place was awesome. It was so refreshing to be the new guy and to be in a new place and just be like, there's plenty of stuff to, to whoop me into shape there. And it's <laughs> like, I was, I was really, really thankful for that experience. Cause we don't get that too often. You know, a bunch of us, I feel like we probably get in our jobs or we get in our role and you get seniority and you get comfortable where you're at. And so it yeah. gets easy and, and comfortable. And I think being uncomfortable is, it was, it was a really good reminder that that is something that I think is good and that I enjoy for some reason. <laughs> Man, I, I like that. <laughs> I like being uncomfortable too. As weird as that sounds, you know, yeah. Like, yeah, go get into the cold water, stay into the hot, you know, in that hot sun, be uncomfortable yeah. for a little bit and then be like oh okay yeah, yeah i can survive <laughs> look <laughs> for I a minute die. <laughs> yeah <laughs> oh that's funny all right man well david if you don't mind um i'd like to get into your very first rescue because i mean 
from lifeguard to into paramedic into everything you're doing. Do you remember your very first rescue? Yeah, when you when you asked that question, it one popped to mind right away. And I don't know if it was the very first, but it was definitely the most impactful. Uh, it was in Zion. It was that first season there for me. And if you haven't been there, it's just a huge canyon system made up by like the Zion River. And so it's all just eroded away and you get these huge sheer canyon walls of a couple hundred feet. And so very spectacular place and probably one of the most commonly hiked things is this river corridor called the Narrows. And someone had fallen in there. There's a bunch of kind of side canyon stuff. So people are always monkeying around in there and falling. And so someone had fought, this guy had fallen and hit his head pretty good. Um, and so of course, this is, this is probably like week one in the park. Um, and so we, you know, gather the cavalry, get all our equipment. And the only way to access this place is you're just marching up the river. You people would essentially, you could do it as a one-way trip, but most people just walked from the exit of the narrows backwards and then would get to some point and turn back around. So we're just like marching up just like everybody else uh, with all of this gear and a team of probably 20 people. Um, and so I think that first piece, just the camaraderie, was a really cool piece for me because all the rescue and lifeguarding was like one or two people and pretty small scale stuff, bring them back to the beach. Everything's fine. Yeah, <laughs> and yeah. so this was like, we're like launching to the moon in my head, in my like 21 year old head. And, and so I think just seeing the coordination organization teamwork was the, was the pieces that were initially attractive. And then when we got there for whatever reason, I did have my paramedic at that time. And I think, there might've, that might've been the, the highest medical cert on the scene. And so it was like, great, here's your patient. And I'm like, whoa, 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 I'm just here to watch and learn. And, and, and so very quickly, it was myself and another person just handed off patient care the whole time. And it, this took forever. It was a really long carry out. I bet we're talking six to eight hours by the time we got there, package him. And then we're essentially floating him in a raft on a backboard down back down the narrows, but it's not, I mean, the water's not that deep. So you're up and over rocks and just a really long, challenging carry out float out, if you will. And that was also the time that I realized people talk about litter carry outs and, and that's probably what drives them to search and rescue for the first time. And I realized then I was like, I think you only need to do one of these and check that box. <laughs> like, <laughs> carrying a litter, it turns out not that fun. <laughs> I was like, just like people just getting beat up, you know, like we're in water and moving around and uh, probably weren't alternating sides of the litter as often as we should. So you're just people, you get beat up doing that work and a helicopter is wow. a really slick tool. <laughs> <laughs> turns out and so i think that well, was, how, real quick how many people did you guys have to go get this guy on the team i bet we were i bet we were close to 20 and so they were doing oh some someone was orchestrating this like you know six people on six people resting six people ready to go back on rotation and and i just even with that it felt like extremely physically demanding but then you're just you're in terrain that you would probably have an issue with just walking in yourself. I mean, you're watching other people just fall that are just out for a hike in the water, which is this new and unique thing for most. And you're like, just walking here is hard. And now I'm like carrying this person up and over rocks. And yeah, it's just, it's tough work. And it's like 
all credit in the world goes to those ground-based rescue teams. The folks that are doing that day in and day out and it's all litter-based is like, that's a beast, period. <laughs> it's really <laughs> hard work. And so good on everybody doing that. Um, I, and then I think that the takeaways for this whole one is it was, yeah, it was six to eight hours probably before we got back out. It's dark, meet the ambulance and pass this patient off. And the things that I think were the other takeaways for me were how much the patient needs a buddy and being that patient's like person. And so that ended up being myself and the other care provider, but there's so much going around, going on around these patients. You know, there's people walking in and out of scene. There's a new group of six all the time coming in to carry them. And so it's really disorienting. I think when you're hurt, when you're strapped yeah. to a backboard and, and, and that was really good lesson for me that like every time we've got a patient, you've got to assign that patient a buddy and be like, someone needs to be at the head and be like, Hey bud, it is Kevin. It is Dave. We are here with you. I'm going to explain what's going on. I'm still here with you. And, and the importance of that was really highlighted when we got a thank you note a couple of weeks later from him. And it only, it's Dave and everyone else. And that is not at all based on the care he was given or what I did that day, other than be his buddy and be by his head and just kept reintroducing myself. Guy's got a head injury. Be like, Hey, it's Dave. Here's where we are. Here's what we're doing. And I think that was, that was something that was suggested to me by the other care providers. Like, Hey, you be the one that just keeps talking to them. And, wow. and that lesson has stuck with me this whole time is like the patient just needs a buddy. And, yeah. and I think that that was probably one of the best things I could have learned at that point in time. Cause it's easy to just start doing the mechanics of a rescue. You know, you're in there, you're walking through water. We're dragging this person up and down and over things to get through this. Like, multiple miles of travel we had to do and the most important thing we say is the patient and then we often forget about the patient we're like we got this like stack of potatoes that we're just like yeah walking down the walking down the trail and so <laughs> i think that that was a that was a healthy healthy lesson and, and good reminder that has that has really been impactful for this whole time since that was like 20 years ago wow yeah that's pretty good yeah so, you, know, you know you can call a helicopter nowadays right i know <laughs> yeah I've, I've heard about that they they kept that information from us for quite some time <laughs> like no 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 uh, this is the way this is the way to do it <laughs> oh that's funny actually you know what in all seriousness 20 years ago you gotta think about this because i've been doing this for about 20 years not every helicopter out there had like a hoist or a way to do a rescue that was really foreign to a lot of places. And then all of a sudden it was like, wait a minute, we can put a hoist on this. The coast guard does it and the Navy does it and the army does it. And yeah, yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's taken some time. And, you know, I, I feel like we can always look to Europe at what they're doing and we're probably like two or three decades behind, you know, they're using helicopters for everything and have been for, quite some time. And I think that's slowly creeping in, but even still in Zion today, they are calling folks out of Vegas, folks out of the Grand Canyon, or even our program out of the Salt Lake area to go down and do that work. There's still not one in that park. And so I think it's still just, a, it's a pretty limited resource in the States, which I think some people really like is that it feels like, Hey, I am a bit more remote and rugged here. And 
if things go wrong, I'm not going to have that immediate helicopter response. I think that's changing. I think there's more aircraft kind of popping up everywhere, everywhere with those capabilities, but it's still probably one of the things people enjoy, but it's also one of the things that make <laughs> litter carries still have to have. <laughs> oh, that long walk, that long, know, long man. walk. <laughs> and it's a, it's a hard conversation to have. And that conference that we were at together, I had a couple other chats with some administrators and, you know, they, they see and hear helicopter and it's probably because it's out of the box for them or it's yeah. unfamiliar. It's automatically this scary or risk filled tool versus it was like, but do you know what you're asking your people to do when they're carrying a 200 pound person in a litter in a waterway with crappy footing up and over rocks for yeah. six hours? Like that's, that's not without risk either. And so it's like, just because it's on the ground doesn't mean it's any less risky or less scary. And I think that's a, yeah. that's a conversation I've had quite a bit with folks that are unfamiliar because they just, for whatever reason, the helicopter and hoist or short haul rescue that just has this appearance that it's much more dangerous or risky. So, and I think that is one thing that, that at first glance isn't always apparent, but the efficiency of a well-trained helicopter crew and the safety margin that exists there is really undeniable um, compared to the risks that we're putting ground folks through when you're asking right. them to do things for multiple hours over really hard or difficult footing. You know, yeah. the number of pictures I have where somebody's gotten hurt on a trail. And so then you look at what a trail rescue is and it's usually the litter is hovering right over top of really like really well manicured trail. And then the rescuers, there's one group of rescuers off trail on the uphill side, leaning over. And there's another group of rescuers on the downhill side off trail, like holding it above their head. And so it's like, no one's on trail. <laughs> so it's just, it, it is like the utmost respect for any time we're doing those rescues and any time that, that people are, are doing those, but, but to, to think that that is somehow less risky, I think is, is, is not truly the case. Yeah. I, you know what it is. And we all talk about it all the time and all the conferences we go to, it's the, you see that litter spin underneath the helicopter and it's out of control and, and people that don't know that world, they're like, oh, my God, that's so dangerous. Well, yeah, but that's all so preventable. And we could have stopped that in many, many ways. But it would have taken your 20 people that you had out on the trail for eight hours and had everybody done. You, you could have sent two guys up to stabilize a patient, call a helicopter. 20 minutes later, they're in, out, and done. So. And it is, it's, it's a tool that's part of a larger system. And there's times when it is appropriate for one or the other. And there's times that weather or mechanical or whatever is going right. to shut that helicopter side of it down. And I think, you know, I may have said it in that talk. And I think it is really important for us to all go back and realize at baseline, we all want to use our skills. We want to use and do whatever we've been trained for. Sometimes that's the right thing and sometimes it's not. And so if we can right. keep looking, what is really best for this patient? If that was my team member or if it was my family member, what would I want done? I think that's probably a better frame of reference than, hey, we just took our rope rescue class and I really want to use a rope right now. <laughs> or I just learned how to do hoist and I really want to hoist them when maybe 
hey, there, that's a place. You know, you can land really like right over there. You, yeah, you, <laughs> we can probably just push them over and they'd hit their car. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, that's going as far as saying i just learned how to do a crike let's do that yeah uh, the patient's yeah. talking to you and they're okay yeah they've got you're a hurt every What's patient with a scalpel <laughs> <laughs> hi ma'am i know you're saying that you just hurt your leg but <laughs> are you sure you're not having trouble breathing <laughs> that is terrible i should not be laughing we should not be laughing dave I damn know, it i know you can you can sense that uh i'm probably not gonna <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it is the truth i mean we all want to use our skills like we all train we all train pretty hard and we all want to use our skills and in the end it's we we've really just got to keep circling back to if i knew this person what would i want done for them and then that's probably the right rescue technique and and uh, even if that means my team or my skills are getting cut out of the equation on this particular instance Right. Yeah. But I, yeah. And you know, what's funny about that is because like when the call comes in, everybody wants to be the first one there. So they can like, Oh, we're going to do oh, it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We know why you want to be the first one there. So you don't have to think about those hard questions. Like, should I really be doing this right now? <laughs> no. Helicopter crew got there first. Let's do this before the boat gets there, before the ground crew gets there. <laughs> Oh man, that's funny. I like it. Oh, that what a good good story. Like and a good memory to kind of start you out. Uh, just kind of get the bug for all this. That's awesome. I like it. Yeah, it had a bunch of good little like nuggets for me that have somehow stayed with me for a decent amount of time, and and I think they were really good ones to learn so early on. Excellent, excellent. Uh, now you actually have a couple up in Denali that stand out to you as well. Um, and I know we talked just a brief moment about them, but you had two separate falls and then somebody with a carbon monoxide poisoning and stuff. I mean, you know, like the falls, I can totally see off Denali in that area. That park is just amazing up there. But uh, the carbon monoxide, that, that would like, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there, there's been a lot. That is, yeah. there, there has, there's been a ton that have, has happened up there. And so when you ask the question, kind of the memorable rescues, it's, you know, these might just only be memorable for me. And, but they were just like that one in Zion, like ones that kind of stuck with me for different reasons. And it is, as you mentioned, it's a, it's a harsh dynamic, like extremely inhospitable place at times. And we, all of our rescues kind of focused on Denali and that 20,000 foot peak. And we do mountain, we do rescue in all the mountains surrounding Denali, that kind of hundred mile range that's up there, the Alaska range, a um, but range. a lot. Yeah, it's huge. And, and it's just, it's big and bold and remote. And there's places that people still haven't been in there and that probably won't be there maybe ever. It's just such a big place, but a lot of the activity centers around Denali because that's what most people are coming up there to do. And, um, and so all three of these happen on there. The kind of main climbing season, as I mentioned for Denali is kind of late April to mid July every year. And so we get 1500 climbers or so every year, 1200 climbers somewhere in there Wow, coming up, trying to summit. Yeah. And about half of them, end up being successful in summiting and but it's a long process and and different than all the other kind of seven summits out there you have to carry all your own stuff there's no 
kind of porter staff. There's no one carrying your things to camp. And so people are showing up and they'll have, you know, a 70 pound backpack and 70 to hundred pound sled that they're dragging behind them to start Holy these trips. So, yeah. Cause these trips are three weeks to four weeks long. And so that's all their food, all their gear. Oftentimes you're carrying stuff that like, I don't need this stuff until I'm really high in elevation, but I've got to carry it down low. So all these times oh. started. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a wake up call. I think for a lot of people that first couple of days of just moving that, and you can't really train for that, you know, like dragging that stuff around your, your neighborhood street is just, <laughs> it's, you can't drag you, that you stuff weird around. looks out the window. Yeah. People putting curtains around like, what is he doing? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So people use, they're just like, well, I'll hike a lot and I'll carry a heavy backpack and then show up and be like, and then there's this thing now behind me and I'm like, might be on skis or snowshoes and it's if i go downhill the thing's trying to run me over if i'm going uphill it seems like it's trying to pull me backwards and so i think it's a big learning curve for all of us every year even going back year after year that first day you're like oh yeah this thing (laughs) (laughs) the the pig is back there (laughs) this sucks i can't wait to see you next year (laughs) i know i'll be back uh yeah the uh and so the, these three kind of took place in, in kind of the very beginning of my career up there. One was in the middle and then one was towards the end. One was just like two years ago. And the first one was tough. Uh, it was a fall. So just to give you a little orientation, we show up and everyone flies onto the mountain at 7,200 feet. And then there's another big camp at 14,200 feet. And then there's the last camp at 17,200 feet. Uh, along the main climbing corridor on Denali. And there's intermittent camps in between there that people stay at, but those are the big ones. And so we spend quite a bit of time at that 14,000 camp because that's a, a really good basin to fly into for our helicopter. It's where we've got probably the most robust medical and communications and uh, living quarters up there that we set up every year. And so we interact also with a lot of people. It's also the launching point for probably like six or seven different climbing routes from there. And so from this spot, you can, you can venture out and do a bunch of different things. So we interact with a bunch of people talking to them about weather, route conditions, things like that uh, during their time at 14,000 camp or advanced base camp. And so unfortunately and unfortunately in this case, we we get to know people quite well. And uh, there's two folks in particular, uh, these two good friends from college that had come back to Alaska. They had been there on an earlier trip about a decade prior uh, and had tried climbing a couple different things and weather just wasn't in their favor. They also actually even helped out with a couple rescues um, while they were on the mountain that year. And they had come back kind of 10 years later and lives looking a lot different. And we're just really excited to be like back together, back in the mountains, giving it another go. And so we spent a bunch of time with them. They were looking at a route on called the, the West rib and the upper West rib on Denali. And so I bet we interact with them three or four times. And, uh, and because of the, the location it is in this big bowl, we can kind of watch everybody. So with binoculars or with a spotting scope, you can kind of see where everybody's at throughout the days. And so you can keep track. Somebody tells you, Hey, I'm going over on this thing. I'll be three or four days. You can then watch them kind of camp their way and climb their way up these, these Oh, routes. that's pretty cool. Yeah. It's a, it's a really neat location. And uh, these two gentlemen uh, were over on their climbing route for kind of three 
three or four nights and, and we'd been watching them and watching everybody else on the mountain. And <clears throat> unfortunately we got a call one morning that just asked, Hey, have you been in touch with our son? And, and that call came through and it was like, no, no, but actually like not everybody I'd be able to answer that question about, but those ones in particular, nope, but we saw them last night. We saw where they were camped. Like I knew who they were talking about. And, yeah. and these two guys, uh, you couldn't see them on the ridge anymore and, and, and uh, didn't know where they were. But oftentimes at that point in the climbing, they, people will go out of view um, as they get towards the summit and we can't see them. I was like, hey, I'm sure everything's okay. And they're like, well, they check in pretty consistently every night, every morning. And we didn't hear from them last night. We didn't hear from them this morning. It's like, okay, well, weather came in a bit and it's a bit windy up there today. So potentially out of batteries, also potentially maybe just really poor connection with that wind up there. Or most likely they just don't want to be in the wind anymore when they're on the move. They're just trying to get down um, and kind of hung up the phone, went about the rest of our day. And probably three hours later, I'll just never forget the sound of people in camp. As I mentioned, it's just this big bowl. People are resting there. People are getting ready for their climbs over the course of probably everybody spends a couple of days there. And I yeah. could just hear screams in camp. And that's never a good thing. And it's not a normal thing there at all. Like you'll hear hooting and hollering. You'll hear people having fun. You'll hear music, but screams just really unsettling in that that big glacier basin and i do remember you know taking the what felt like a minute but it was probably 10 seconds to get out of the tent and kind of look at what might be going on and just seeing people pointing and gesturing over towards this really steep face on the mountain um and and the unmistakable view of two people just falling repeatedly and kind of cartwheel falling down this this zone called the mesner Kular on the mountain and you're watching it like watching, watching them fall all yeah and brutal man just like awful scenario that oh everyone my. in camp there's nothing to do except sit and watch for our oh, okay so real know? quick i did not expect that like yeah. wait yeah holy cow so and, somebody saw them slip and start to fall started screaming everybody comes out and is watching these two dudes fall down like hundreds of feet boom yeah boom. oh no a thousand it's a five thousand foot coolar and so to go oh, it's from like 19,000 where it's 14 so it's just brutal like something no one should ever have to see and for us you know there was kind of the momentary pause where we're all watching and then it's like okay this is now our job um being the team that's that's going to be at the base of this fall and so then very quickly even before the fall had, had finished we left one person out there to watch so we knew where they end up and that everybody else was like, okay go get your ready packs let's start getting gear and mobilizing to be out the out of our camp we on denali as a as an aside, typically have kind of a 30 minute go time. I know for everyone else here is like, Oh, we're out the door in five minutes. We're out the door in 10. Yeah. And for us gathering the gear, knowing our initial approach is going to be on foot. We're going to have to climb a couple thousand feet to get to these folks. We could yeah. be out there overnight in, you know, below freezing, below zero temperatures. Like we've got to be ready to stay out and deal 
with ourselves, but then also with the patient. And so we typically have everybody with a ready pack ready to go. But if we're out the out of camp in 30 minutes, that's a that's a good time stamp for us. Uh, just knowing that we're we need to be prepared to be out there for 36 hours is kind of what our 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 target is um, yeah. in whatever weather comes. Uh, and so for us, just getting that team ready, I think we were out pretty close to that 30 minutes, but, uh, the, I think just the unfortunate one of this entire rescue and there's, you know, there's a couple pieces after, but it was, it was a pretty straightforward recovery after this point. Uh, the, the unfortunate part was there was other climbers that were up near them that were able to ski down, uh, to their location before we got there. Um, and so unfortunately there was private climbers that, that were the first responders and first on scene again, stuff that people shouldn't see, not accustomed to seeing, maybe should never see, even if you were a rescue responder. And for these folks as just private climbers out for a day skiing, and then they're over here dealing with two people, uh, that they don't know that are now deceased. Um, I, I, something else that, you know, it's just another component. I think we, we often think so much about the lessons in this one, once we got on scene, made the assessment was, I think first is, is dealing with all the bystanders, you know, now I ha- now we've got an entire camp who watched this, you know, like probably a hundred people watch this. And now we've got three other people that skied over that were just on a day trip, like out climbing and skiing by themselves that ended up being first responders. And then I think the third component is knowing the people. And so now here's these two people that it's a unique environment there where we do interact with everybody. We brief every single climber that comes on the mountain in town, and then we see them all the way up the mountain. And so to have interacted with these guys so many times, and here they are my age doing the things I like to do out for what is supposed to just be vacation and like a reunion with his buddy and now these two young guys are dead. And, and I think that the reality of that is tough. I think it's really easy for us in our rest of our world. When we go to rescue somebody or you're doing EMS or you're doing flight medicine, it's really easy to look at some of our patients and be like, well, that's not me. You know, like, yeah, they might be, uh, you know, whether poor health or they were doing something, have a chronic illness or a disease that I don't have, or it's really easy to, to kind of separate ourselves. And, and this job in Alaska has been really eye-opening and that you can't, because everybody's out there doing the same things that we all love to do, that we're also out there doing on my, the, when we're not involved in rescue up there, we're out climbing and skiing to stay in shape. Like we're out there all doing the same thing because we love it. Yeah. And I think that was, that's the hard part of that rescue in particular. I think one is the, the larger community that saw it. And then these folks that were first responders, like the acts, like the people that rolled up on them first with no training and no equipment to deal or to assess um, a, a deceased patient or even a, a critically injured patient. And then lastly for us is like, these are people we knew and people we had interacted with. And I think those were the really hard parts of that one. That's that's unique to some of our environments where maybe for you in the, maybe the military crews that are listening is like, 
going out to deal with one of your own. Like that's a, that's a window that or a door that most of us don't want to walk through or don't want to have to. And it is a reality at times, but it makes it a lot more challenging when you can see yourself in those people. And I think for, for us on that rescue, that was probably the, the biggest take home. I think for all of us was just, Hey, they were doing what we were planning to do later that day as well was to just be out there climbing in the sun with buddies and enjoying life. Yeah. Yeah. And how quickly that, that changed for those two people. And yeah. So that's, I think that one for obvious reasons was, was pretty memorable. Um, and has, has absolutely stuck with me this whole time. And those, those, those pieces that I mentioned, I think myself and then the team that I was with that, that day, all of us kind of carry those pieces yeah. with us. And I, I mean, I do think that's important with all this is like, you got to find your way through it. Right. Like how do you, right. how do you get past that? And it's like, for me, it's like, okay, celebrating those guys' lives, what they were doing. But then also it's like, I am determined to hold whatever lesson I can take from those into every patient, every rescue, every interaction I have with people going forward. And that feels really important because it is, it's hard. There's no reason those guys aren't here today. Like there's no rationale that you can get your brain to. So it's like, okay, how do I move forward? But in like that really positive and kind of healthy way so that we can prevent this from happening to me or other people. I think it's been the kind of transition that happened to me that day was like, okay, how do I make or take some good out of this in something that there's no apparent good. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's so I have never had to do that myself to respond to somebody that, you know, either a friend or a colleague or an acquaintance that I know. I, for me, it's usually arrive on scene. I pick somebody up, victim, patient, whatever it is, load them, go drop them off. And I usually never see them again. Um, So yeah, that, that's an interesting uh, realm. Wow. Yeah, that's a so that one was memorable as 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 you asked. <laughs> um, yeah. So then, yeah, this the the next rescue that came to mind that has has had some kind of lasting impact on me was this carbon monoxide poisoning. That it actually involved two climbers, uh, and it was about three summers ago. Um, I don't think we often think about it. I. I uh, carbon monoxide is this, you know, like thing that you go on to a mountain and you're thinking, okay, how can I get sick? How can I get hurt? And I yeah. think it's kind of in the back of all of our minds. It's Nobody's also driving a car with the garage no, closed, or... <laughs> but storms happen. And then when storms happen, we all move inside these little tent shelters and try to batten them down. And then we're cooking inside. And that is where we probably see the biggest threat of this. Yeah. And and, you know, it's funny, every year the Park Service buys us like a CO detector and sends it up to our high camp and we put it in our cook tent and it's beeping all the time and it drives us nuts. So we throw it out the door and we'll get another one next year. And so it's like, I think it's actually probably a much bigger problem than any of us want to acknowledge. And, and we're all probably rolling around with higher than normal CO levels during those trips because the ventilation is just tough. And it's not adequate. There's no fan in there that's blowing anything out. And so unfortunately in this storm and uh, it had probably been storming for two days and brutal, like ground blizzard, like 
unable to travel, like difficult to even just move across your camp. So for us, we've got a cook tent and a comms tent and a medical tent and then sleeping tents. And so even going between those, which are like 15 feet apart, like almost impossible, like just raging, ripping, ripping people's tents apart, like a bad ground storm. And at some point it starts to cool down, calm down and, and, and camps starting to move around a little bit. You can just tell like, okay, storm's getting better. And so people are out moving around and we just happen to be having dinner ourselves uh, over in our cook tent. And this storm, I think probably two days is not an exaggeration. Um, and you can tell, you can hear things really long distances at Denali. Like it's just a quiet, quiet place. And so when someone's yelling or screaming or running or moving fast or even breathing heavy, you can hear people from, from some distance away. And we're sitting in this cook tent and we hear somebody like panting, running, like starting to yell or scream to us to get our attention, but can't get it out. Cause again, it's at 14,000 feet. <laughs> so finally this person kind of busts through our tent door. <clears throat> and to be honest, the five people on my rescue team all heard something different. We all heard carbon monoxide poisoning, but we all heard a different number of people. Someone heard a whole group. Someone heard one person someone heard 10 people. And so we're all like, it just kind of brings you back to that initial like training of like, okay, take that deep breath and like pay attention to what someone's saying first. Yeah. And so I, I think this one was really memorable for me because it was one of those times where I, I had a great lesson as the, I was the leader on this team and the the, the team lead for this rescue patrol. And we bring volunteers on there with us. And so I happened to have the commander of the Alaska PJs was on my team. The most cool. skilled, amazing person ever. Yeah, we get to interact with those guys and have them on a bunch of our patrols. And they're just such an awesome resource for us. And so he's there and just doing as told, you know, he normally is commanding like God knows how many people. And here he is like taking, taking orders from me and my little team of three <laughs> other people. It's like, yeah, whatever you want, Dave. <laughs> so it's chaotic to say the least, because what I had heard was a, was a guided team, uh, was, was all, had all succumbed to, to CO poisoning. <clears throat> so we're not, don't have a clear picture of what's going on. Not sure what we're going to. We're like, okay, everybody, it's right across camp. So we don't need to prepare for a huge extended outing but we need every bit of oxygen we've got. We need all of our med jump kits. Those are the priority pieces for us to bring over there now. They're in camp, so we've got resources we can, we can kind of pillage from there um, if we need them. But right now we need oxygen, oxygen, oxygen. That's, that's yeah. what we're calling for. We get over there and it, also during this time, it's pretty scattered. Like we didn't all stop to regroup kind of tasked out people with things. And then we all left on our own. So it was like, Hey, when people had whatever it was I had said to go get or whatever I grabbed myself, we were all left as individuals. And I think that was, these all circle back to the, the debrief at the end. That was, that was great. And, and enlightening. <laughs> uh, but then we get over there and essentially we've got two people that look 
one absolutely looks as though he's he's died and another one looks very near to that but starting to kind of like stumble around and so still and alive. given still alive still alive but but neither of them look good um and so over a very short course of time we get in kind of spread the crowd because there was like you know there's hundreds of people in camp and they're all kind of now have descended on this location first thing we do is get the tent off like just rip the tent off of them and just get that kind of enclosed and 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 contained airspace open to fresh air um And then we each kind of divided into teams. I had a physician's assistant with me, uh, sent her to the, to the patient that was, um, was starting to move around. And uh, then I went to the one that wasn't moving at all. Um, and then literally, man, it, there's very few times that you feel like a superhero in these jobs. Yeah. And it's really good when you feel like a superhero and you didn't actually do anything. And so literally the actions of pulling this tent off, introducing some fresh air and then sitting and talking to the guy who looked dead, he came back to starts interacting, starts joking around, remembers his name, and then slowly just works through that like reboot process of like, Oh, I'm alive. I know my name. I know what time of day it is. I know. Oh my Lord, like, what? But to what I, it's like just the, I think the, couple things that were really apparent is it was the middle of a storm if that storm had gone on any longer we would have just found two dead people in their tents who knows when like days later you know there's tents all over this place yeah and they were a private party of two that were in there cooking together people sometimes will leave their tents up and go climb other places and be gone for a day or two and come back to their tent and so how that could have ended up so much worse or it could have ended up so much worse in so many different ways and And it's just so fortunate that it didn't. And for whatever reason, the one guy that I mentioned in the group that was kind of stumbling around was able to just like thrust himself out of the, his tent. And so an arm came out and then someone in the tent next to them saw and was like, huh, that's weird. It's like a person just collapsed in that tent and went to investigate. And that is the only reason those two people are alive right now. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And it's like, those guys would have just sat in there and carbon monoxide themselves to death just because out of necessity, they were cooking in their tent. They were in their tent. Storm was raging. So they closed everything, no ventilation. Snow was getting in every nook and cranny they said. And so they were just cooking, trying to make some water in this enclosed environment and got sleepy, started nodding off. One totally went out and it was actually the guy who thrust himself out of the tent He's a fighter pilot in Austria by training. And he just said, he's like, it came back to my, when we were able to talk to them and spend time with them over the next couple of days, he's like, it was just my training. He's like, I remember my training of doing like G-force training and things like that. When I start to pass out, when I start to like, my world starts to go black, Yeah, that is what kicked in. And I was like, I've got to get out of here. And he's like, I lunged across the tent with whatever remaining, like, muscle and cognitive power I had thrust an arm out. And that's what saved those dudes lives. And, you know, like amazing story that could have ended horribly for those two and for their families. And somehow today they're alive and we look like heroes. And all we did literally was take their tent off and then air came, (laughs) fixed the problem, 
And everyone's like, oh my gosh, that never would have happened without you. Yeah, it would have happened with any of you if you just did the same thing. <laughs> well, we're not going to tell anybody that. We're going to tell them you, you're like, yeah, 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 yeah. Did you see that? So Hands all that... on your hips. Da, da, da. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Another stay for the day. We'll go mark it on the Hell, wall. the conquering hero. And then. Oh my gosh, Dave. That's crazy. So then we. Yeah. And so then we circle back and it was really great. Like this entire response, you know, that every time we go on a rescue, there's something we should be learning, something we should be getting better at. And they're usually the thing that's nagging you in the back of the head. And I knew it. Like, as soon as we're back in camp, I'm like, we're debriefing that one. Cause that was a shit show. And it was, it was that way because of my lack of leadership. And, you know, I think. Wow, just way to take ownership the- on that one. Well done. But it just, and, and it was great too, because having, having the PJ commander, my buddy Matt on there was awesome. Cause he, you know, having somebody that just shoots straight and was like, great, let's debrief this. Like, let's dig into this. Let's dig into every piece of it so that that doesn't happen to me and doesn't happen to us as a team going forward. And, you know, I think all the way back from that first response is like someone comes up to you screaming and you're just like, all of us heard something different. Problem number one, you know, instead of being like, wait a second, what did you say? Like how many people, what are we going to deal with? You know, yeah. it's not a whole like guided group of 10 people. It wasn't one person. It was two, like just that like set everything I think in motion. And so that panicked request resulted in our panicked response or my panicked response. And that's just uncalled for. It was also, we don't respond in camp too often. Everything was out of the ordinary, you know, like we don't, I I could see where everybody was congregating. That never happens. We usually have, as I mentioned, half an hour, we all put on our boots, we get ready. (laughs) We like slowly go out the door and get ready for 36 hours away from camp, little experience. And you know, I think all those things kind of, oh, it's just over there. And so the same thing, tasking out people, probably not as clearly as I could have. Hey, you get this, you get this, you get this. Didn't have a cohesive plan ever portrayed to each person or to the whole group. And then people, myself being the worst, I probably grabbed stuff the soonest and was out the door and just left my team behind. Not briefed. They could see where it was. And there I am over there pulling the tent off people before I look as the rest of my team is like slowly filtering into the spot. And so, so many lessons, so many failures, so many, like, it was literally like a case study in how not to do this. And it was awesome because it all happened at once. Like normally it's like, you know, there's one or two things. And I was like, God, I could have done every single step of that better <laughs> and should have. <laughs> yeah but of course in the end it's all about looking like a hero and we did but god getting getting to that point was was not pretty and not something like uh, probably the most uh insightful experience for me and to places that I need to be really cognizant to, to pay attention and slow down. And he just kept saying, you know, like every time I'd see Matt, I think for the rest of that trip, he was like tactical pause. <laughs> like, Shut up. Tactical pause. I know that combat term. Good um, breathing. <laughs> it's a great, great, uh, great term, like a tactical pause. And that's just take that minute, 
before you rush in, it, you know, actually one of my buddies, uh, Ashton just said, you know, don't, don't, don't rush to your death. Take a minute. Yeah. Like uh, I love Dude, it. Tactical it just... Every training you've <laughs> ever been in every medical scenario. What do you say? Scene safe, scene safe, scene safe, scene safe. Yeah. Like all, yeah. all that, it just becomes like verbal diarrhea that like, yeah. Oh yeah, it actually means something. <laughs> like, yeah. Slow down. Hey, what did you say the problem is? Okay, here's the plan, everyone. Like yeah. all those things that you practice time and time again. And then yeah. when it was execute time, it was dumpster fire. <laughs> <laughs> but again, oh my gosh. great outcomes. Everybody lived all these things, but they, they did so in spite of my actions and in spite of my leadership. And I think that that was kind of the second piece of all of that, that I said, I was like, you know what, everybody, like in spite of complete lack of leadership, and a poor to non-existent plan, like the end result was you all stepped up and figured out what needed to be done on your own. And we got it done, which is like the epitome of team that yeah. hopefully we're surrounding ourselves with. And like on my bad day, somebody's got my back and yeah. on your bad day, hopefully I'm there to, to fill in and have your back. Cause those are going to happen. Like it was like complete brain fart on my uh, account that day and just a such a good reset to be like okay here you are like nine years or ten years into this job as like the rescue leader on these patrols and you just made like the jv <laughs> look like the all-star team like that was horrible <laughs> man <laughs> oh. Good for you yeah. for owning it yeah like I, I love doing debriefs I, I, I don't like screwing up so that's, but at the same time, when you screw up, um, man, own it, come back and be like, you know what? You're right. I, I need that needs to be fixed. And this is what I can do better. I like that. Yeah. We, like that we have, we've been pushing really hard on our hoist team in particular back in, in Salt Lake area is just for effective debriefs. I know it's so in the military, I think in particular does this really well where you focus on the stuff that's actually going to make you better than next time. And, that is very rarely the good jobs and the pats on the back and the, right. the things that we did well. Like I, yeah. that has such little value. It might feel good. You might be psyched for the high five, but it's not really what changes anything or changes people. It's what can I do better? What can you do better? What can we do better? Like those are the only questions that matter. And, yeah. and once you can get there and be like, Hey, we are all going to have bad days and being able to, like you said, just to own it and be like, yeah, I'm going to have a horrible day. I'm going to blow it like every step of the way. And somehow you all are going to make it happen. Even with me, like doing everything in my power to set you up for failure. And you still, because we had a good team and because we yeah. had trained a bunch ahead of time. And, yeah. and that's for me, that kind of epitome of all this, like that team trust piece that, Yeah we're right, all like you said, at times it's who you surround yourself with as well i mean if you have uh some guys that are like high speed low drag you know i i like to think that if you and i were working together even you and i have never worked together but if we did and we had something going on that i would know like from all my training i could bring in and then with all your training you could bring in and we would meet in the middle and just make it work you know yeah. and that's that's pretty awesome so yeah, I think if you're leaving any rescue or even any training and you don't have something, one concrete thing or a couple of concrete things, be like, I need to work or focus on this. Like, yeah. Then I think I think we're wasting time because yeah. 
oftentimes I feel like I've left debriefs and I was like, okay, well, we all just sat around, told each other that we're awesome. Now we're going for a beer. <laughs> it's like, I, that's enjoyable. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but getting better? Yeah. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I'm, I'm going to tell you a little secret right now, which is no longer going to be a secret. We went uh, awesome, we just yesterday. And um, one of the things that, that we came back with the debrief is in my conning, I, I like, I standard up procedure is forward and right. You know, if you have a space, I, it was one, you know, you want to give a direction and a number, a closing rate. And um, I, I actually changed it while we were in flight. And I was like, yeah, I need you to come a little bit left, just a little bit left. Nowhere in any of our writing is that standard terminology. And I had done it throughout the entire flight, not really thinking about it. But when we got back to debrief, the pilot was like, um, yeah, by the way, that's not, you know, standard terminology. Ha, ha, ha. It was a joke. And I was like, you know what? I appreciate you saying that. I appreciate you calling me out right now because if I was training a new guy, I would be calling him out right now. And that's not something I should be teaching younger guys. So thank you. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. My bad. It won't happen again. And then today we go out training and that didn't come up. So bonus. Yeah. And it's hard. It's hard as you get into a, maybe a trainer role or a leadership role where to have somebody speak up gets hard and they're like, Oh, he's been doing this forever. Or uh, I probably shouldn't speak up or, or finding things gets harder. Like that dude, that pilot's probably been waiting a year to find something Jason, like, yes, I got, I have something to give you, which is good, man. Like, yeah, we should be like what a we dick. Should be, he's been waiting for a year. Which is awesome to have that person be like, hey, good job today, except for this one thing. And it's like, if we're getting to the point where we're that nitpicky with our feedback, then that means we're probably functioning pretty well. And yeah. for you to hear that, I like, I talk about that a lot with people that we're training and on the team is there's a huge difference between you suck and that sucked. Mm -hmm. And it is which I monumental. love that in your in your presentation, it's, by the way. One of my favorites. It's like my it is one of my favorites. I, I just we hear it so often as you suck, like Jason, for the rest of your life, you're destined to suck because you said a little bit left this one day. It's like, no, that sucked, Jason, fix it tomorrow. You'll be back to who you, you normally are. And like, it is always that thing you did sucked. It is fixable. You can work on it. We're not saying you suck, but we often hear it that way. And that's yeah. the, that's where debriefing just comes off the rails. People are like, I don't want to give feedback. I don't want to hear this. People keep telling me that I'm a crappy person. It's like, no, they're just saying you do crappy things. <laughs> <laughs> but those are fixable. <laughs> do you understand the words that are coming out of my mouth? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. You know what? I want to touch on that a little bit more when we're, when we're done because I, I really like that. But uh, let's get into yeah. your next one. So you said you had yeah, one more memorable one and then a fall. Yeah, this is, this is kind of last one. Again, each one of these stuck out because I think if, for me, it's really important to take, take something back from all of these. Like, what can I pull out of every training, every rescue that will make me better and maybe make a team better? And, and there's been some great mentors in my life, as, a, as I assume were, you have had as well. And, and two of those have come from the park service for me. And one was the person that used to run uh, the the rescue program at Denali and he, his name is Dara Miller and just an amazing human being. And just one of those people that seems to just spit out wisdom, 
like at every casual conversation and his one relates back to the carbon monoxide one. And he's, he would always say their emergency is not your emergency. Their emergency is not my emergency. Their emergency is not our emergency. Like their emergency is their emergency. And we're not going to change anything. God, if I had had that, like on a billboard that day with the CO poisoning, like running out that, like he would have been so ashamed as I'm running past the sign that Daryl's like flashing the billboard being like, their emergency is not your emergency. What are you doing? <laughs> and so that one stuck. And then the, the second one came on this next rescue. And, and that was from another amazing mentor who used to run the uh, Teton rescue team named Rennie Jackson. He's got an amazing number of, of things that he said over the time that have stuck with me. But on this one in particular, the scenario was it was late in the evening so because it's alaska we have daylight forever you know so this is middle of the amazing i think this is may and so these people are climbing it like it's not unusual most people climb in the lower 48 and then you're up kind of get up before the sun so that you're at a peak or a summit you know kind of midday earlier in the day and then you leave yeah um Alaska, totally different. People aren't and shouldn't be moving before the sun's up. And so that's like nine, 10 in the morning, sometimes 11 in the morning. I've left to go to the summit of Denali at one o'clock in the afternoon before, because I know that it's just getting warm. And then also I know that I've got sun until 11 o'clock that night. And so yeah. just that the, the day has shifted up there a little bit for, for those climbing windows. And so this team had left like everybody else. And so it's probably at eight o'clock at night when they're getting towards uh, the summit ridge, which is a late, late uh, evening uh, regardless. And so eight o'clock they're heading up their last people on the mountain and this group before, and that just like the first incident I told you about um, everyone's roped together. And so unfortunately that first fall we talked about, it was likely one of them that fell, but the safety in hopes that the other person can self-arrest and stop the fall on your rope, then that'll stop you from falling is the idea. So the rope is, is your protection. If your partner can stop, if it's too hard or too steep or icy and they can't do that, then you need to put in protection, um, some other, uh, uh, snow pickets or anchors so that if one of you falls, it's the anchor that stops you because the other person won't be able to, unfortunately, that's probably what happened in the first instance we talked about, and it is what happened in, in this instant that we'll talk about. And so we had four people on one rope, one of them fell. And, uh, in that fall, uh, one of the people broke his leg, broke his leg really bad His mm-hmm. lower had a tib fib open fracture. So the lower oh. portion of your leg, uh, bone sticking out. So this is now at, to set the scene, we're eight o'clock at night sun is you know we're in the the kind of dusk hours it's getting cold we're at nineteen thousand seven hundred feet so we're high up uh when this happens or this when this happens this team and they're the last people up there everybody else has already gone down for the day so like everyone else is back in camp we don't have a rescue team that's up there and then the winds are picking up um of course like every rescue you know it's it's never the bluebird sunny (laughs) afternoon Um, and so we get this call in the evening. So probably nine o'clock, they start mobilizing us saying, Hey, we got one person that's immobile. They're trying to create shelter up there so that they can all stay safe together, but they're having a hard time keeping the shelter together because the winds are blowing so much. They've lost some equipment. And so you can just start to hear 
over the radio and, and in this relay, like kind of the, the pieces are coming apart. Um, and the night is only supposed to get worse. They're projecting 60 to 100 mile an hour winds. Oh my They're gosh. stuck at 19,000. It sounds like they've been able to get to a, a lower spot. Um, but this is nine o'clock at night. And so we also in the park service are an exclusive VFR program. So only fine in the daytime uh, with those yeah. park service helicopters. Um, and so for us, we're about to hit our pumpkin hour and winds aren't, aren't suitable for flight. And so we're scrubbing it for the night, uh, which is one, a really hard thing to do. Um, we all regroup in the morning. And, and this is when I think it was really impactful to have Rennie there. He was up there auditing us and doing some training for us, um, from his other program. And we're walking there and it's like, now we're 12 hours into this. It's been raging 60 miles an hour sustained up there. Temps that we're seeing at 14,000 camp are well below zero. Like it's an awful night. And we've also gotten word that sometime in the night, their kind of makeshift shelter blew apart. And that at some point the team split up. And so now we're faced with this kind of 12 hours of sustained horrible weather the team's not together anymore. Like people went to get her help or whatever happened to split them all up. And so we're well, now they split everybody up. Nobody's together. Yeah. Anymore. We're oh yeah. At that gosh. point we just heard the team split up. And so, mm-hmm. you know, you okay. start thinking about this and you think immediately to, Hey, we were going to get this guy with the broken leg. Like that was our patient. But now you're like, Whoa, this might be four patients. It could be three. Like who knows what we're up against now. Um, and I just remember, I made the callous comment as we're walking to the station with Rennie. And I was just like, no way that guy's still alive. And he's just like, never count anybody out. And I was like, okay, whatever, Rennie, let's keep going. Another dumb thing Dave said. And we get over there. And then sure enough, like six hours later, we have great working relationship with, with the military. And so one of our crew is up in the C-130 doing kind of aerial ops and orbits and running comms while we bring another aircraft winds are still horrible, but they, with that, uh, aircraft are able to actually get visual on one individual up on this 19,500 foot plateau. And this dude is waving. That is the guy that I had said, no way, no way that guy's alive. And Rennie told me correctly, don't ever count anybody out. And, you know, long story short, we end up rescuing everybody in this team end up short hauling this guy off with his with his broken leg back down to get care he ended up losing everything below that break unfortunately due to frostbite and the length of time that it was exposed and but there was then three other people unaccounted for that had to be found so two ended up making it back to camp one did not unfortunately just uh perished about a thousand feet above camp uh probably Ah. from the elements Uh, And so again, you just kind of, you see this and we've all been a part of some scenario where everything's going fine. And then one thing goes wrong and then another, and just that like cascade of, of things that start going wrong. And that seems like what happened here. And I think for us, like the take-homes for us were exactly what Rennie had said. And it's like, don't count anybody out. You never know. So it ends up being the totally healthy guy that was making his way back to camp who dies. You know, and it's not the person you think. And I think just people's resiliency, people's will to live, 
their individual circumstances, all of those things are factors that we'll never know. And our job is really to just go respond and do the best we can for those people. Yeah. And if we hid for whatever reason, listen to my kind of perspective and be like, Hey, you know what? Maybe we should go after these other three and go after, then we would have missed somebody that's still living up there. That was yeah. the most critical and should have been the first one. And, and you think about those times where if you do count somebody out or you're like, no way that it's no way that person's going to make it. Let's focus our energy over here. It's like, well, maybe we should check on most critical first before we write them off or before we say, Hey, because I couldn't survive that. I wouldn't have lived through that night with a busted leg out in the open. Like, we were able to see from the aircraft too, before we even got him that he had moved probably 200 yards, just scooting on his butt, probably to stay warm or trying to make it back to camp through this hellacious storm. And it's like those pieces of kind of the, the human resiliency, I think are kind of not things we can quantify. And, and, you know, such a good lesson for me that stuck with me and that team, like here in Rennie, you know, the wise like elder in our group, just being like, Hey, I've seen a lot. And like, you never know who's going to make it out there. You know, the person that you immediately write off, like, no way that person's got no experience. They're in over their head. They're not going to make it. And then they do versus the totally experienced person that doesn't. And, you know, it's like, there's a bit of, a bit of, you know, flipping a coin, I think on some of these, and we just got to do our best to give everybody the best chance. And yeah. that's really all we can do. And it was that for me, it was the take home there. Then at some point in this mix, I think probably Randy's other most famous saying that just sticks with me all the time. He's like, you need to know this when you're moving a fridge with your wife, you need to know this when you're doing a rescue operation, but you need to know two answers to two questions. What's the plan and who's in charge? And throughout that day, he asked that probably 15 times. <laughs> he just kept circling back. He's like, what's the plan and who's in charge? He's got a hilarious story. He's like, yeah, my wife and I were just trying to move a fridge. I asked the same question, drives her nuts. But he's like, we didn't have a plan. No one was in charge. Fridge was going to kill one or both of us. Same thing in a rescue. It's like, what's the plan and who's in charge? And just keep circling back to that. When things start coming off the rails or things are going sideways a little bit. It's just like, okay, everybody, do we have a plan here? And is someone leading this plan? If not circle back. And that goes back perfectly to something I should have listened to. in that CEO response It's like, okay, Dave, what's the plan here? I don't know. I'm just running around grabbing stuff and leaving. Who's in charge. You are definitely not in charge. So appoint <laughs> someone or get it together. <laughs> oh, what a great piece of advice. I like that. Yeah, if those my are, wife you know, was here right now, she would say, I'm always in charge. I say, like, Yes, ma'am. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Okay, just tell me the plan for the day. Yeah, that's right. What's the plan? <laughs> execute. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what the plan is. Well, then make one. You're in charge. Come on, honey. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So those when you ask those questions, you know, what's memorable and and what those are the ones that have really stuck out and really informed, I think, who I am today and who I aspire to be with these other teams that I work with. And and who I emulate and, and, you know, I think fully circling back to that first one, which is a really grim story that fall and that Mesner Kular is like looking for the good things. The other great thing that's come out of that is I've become really good friends with one of those climbers mom, and we probably touch base once a year and have kept in touch this whole time. And so those like human pieces of all this, I think when you can yeah. find them are, have been really gratifying 
for what we do. Because I know we all say we like helping other people. And I know that is somewhere in the list of why you're a hoist rescuer or why you're yeah. on a special ops team or why you're a climbing ranger. But there's other things on top of helping other people. And it's probably fun and team and exciting work <laughs> and all those other things. Helping totally. other people is in there. Uh, and so when you do get to kind of circle back to that component of it, like now I've got a really great friend and, and, and person in my life who I keep in touch with that I would have never known. And, and we came together in really poor circumstances, but I think something really good has come out of that as we kind of both search for a way forward. Wow. Dude, these stories are incredible. That's, thank you so much for sharing them. Oh man. Thanks for listening to all my, my screw ups. That's, that's, (laughs) you're welcome. You know what? I, I'm glad you actually said that because I I do want to touch on that. I really enjoyed your presentation uh, at HAI when you were talking, or APSA, um, and specifically talking about the, you suck and that sucked. Like I cannot agree with you enough. And for everybody out there, you got to be able to take a grain of salt. When somebody's telling you that something went wrong, they might be looking at you and be like, yeah, you screwed that up. That was, that was your fault. Or maybe I'm taking ownership and I'm saying, yeah, that's my fault. But at the same time, that was an event. Like it doesn't, if you know, like yeah. I, I'll let you piggyback it off from there, but no, it is. It's not our definition. And, and I just think it's the frame of reference. You know, if yeah. I think innately we hear it as you suck and it's just, I think it's natural. We all do. Like as soon as someone comes with feedback and it's probably like we all, why we all like the soft feedback and the, the easy debriefs, but none of that shit makes you better. Like none right. of it. But the stuff, if you really want to get better, if your team wants to get better, like you got to hear those things and you just got to be like, okay, cool. They are telling me something to work on that I can work on that is fixable. That is totally often pretty easy to correct for you. It's like, oh yeah, why, why was I not saying left three, two, one, like I do every other day. Like, I don't know why, but I'm just going to fix it. And if you catch me doing it again, call it out in the moment. So I like have that trigger or whatever to, to stop it. But it, it's the hard part, but it's also, I think what separates the kind of good or moderate teams from the great teams is the people that are like, let's get in, let's get into the meat. What did I mess up? What did I tell you I messed up? What'd you mess up? And let's fix those things and do it again tomorrow. And that's like such an amazing group culture to be around if you can do it. And if you can't get it in your group, then just do it for yourself. Go ask people, what can I do? But Hey, I think I could have done these couple things better, but what'd you see? What am I blind to? And cause it takes a lot. Like I, we often think like, God, it sucks to get that feedback. Think of the effort that we have to put in though, to give somebody feedback, like for your pilot the other day is like, I'm guessing he thought about that for a while. I was like, do I even bring this up? Like, I know Jason no, really no, well. He, We're buddies. He, did not, okay. he didn't even question <laughs> calling me up. It was like an opportunity. Pow, let's punch him right in the face. Okay. Well, some more thoughtful and caring and considerate people in your life probably okay. think a little bit before giving you feedback. And I think acknowledging that too is like, it's hard to give people feedback, especially if they're more senior than you or more trained than you or higher in the, the rank than you are. 
to say like, Hey, there's stuff you can work on too. And I'm only telling you this because I want this place to be great. And I want you to be great. And that framework totally resets. I think everyone is like, Oh, you're just telling me that thing I did sucked. Okay, great. I do sucky things all day long, but I'm not a sucky person. And that's that, that was a really healthy change for me. Cause otherwise you're just like, your bristles are up all the time. Like people give you feedback. It's like, well, why don't we talk about all the good stuff I did? (laughs) (laughs) Let's see. I want I want a warm and fuzzy. Okay. I'll end it on a positive note. Everything else sucked. (laughs) Give me the happy sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. That's awesome. Thank you for that one. I appreciate that. Oh yeah. Dave, all these stories and the advice and everything you're giving me and everybody else out here is unbelievable. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us and just sharing your knowledge, dude. This is awesome. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for having me and giving me the chance. I'm just literally spouting other things that people told me. And so I, it's, it's mainly a testament to them, but thanks a ton for yeah. taking the time with me. Oh, absolutely. And uh, the next time I get to Denali, I'll call you first or Montana or wherever the heck you're going to be. All right. Salt Lake city or, or, you know what, why don't you come back to, to the East coast? We'll hang out in Boston for a minute. All right. Come, Just call my cell phone. I'll come get you from what, <laughs> from wherever I am. Wait, you know what? Why? Let's just roll the dice. Let, spin the globe. We'll hit, you know, wherever the finger stops the globe, that's where we'll meet. All right. That sounds great, man. I'm in for that. Awesome. Dave, I'll catch you later. I will be in touch. I promise. It's been a pleasure, my man. Thank you. And with that, absolutely. And with that, ladies and gentlemen, we are out of here. Go. Thank you for tuning in. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Real Rescue Podcast. Please take a minute to like, subscribe, and hit that share button. I'm pulling chocks and taking off. But before I go, if anyone out there has a rescue story they would be willing to share, I would be humbled and honored to have you on as a guest. Or if you have any questions about rescue or anything else we talk about here, send an email to jason at therealrescue.com. That's jason at T-H-E-R-E-A-L-R-E-S-Q.com. You can also check us out on our web pages, therealrescue.com, our Facebook page, and our Instagram page, at The Real Rescue. Again, a special thank you to all of you standing on the watch today. Always remember, when that star alarm goes off, those in distress are praying for a miracle. They are going to get you. Until next time, fly safe and swim hard.